Psalm 146, 1 through 10. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. All right, well, we're continuing um, our series here for a couple more weeks, getting through Christmas, and then we'll do, do one actually after Christmas, um, just to round it out, moving through the biblical story, uh, the redemptive history of the Bible, as we call it. This is the big story arc. This is trying to understand what the Bible is saying as a big story to get the big ideas down. And to do this, we're moving through kind of a theology of kingship. What does kingship mean in light of having a heavenly father? And we've called this the once and future king, looking at how Adam was the first king, actually, given dominion, giving rule, but then he fell. And then last week we looked at how in the time of the judges in Joshua, there was a land with no king. And what did it mean to follow God in a time of no king? And we've tried to sync these up as well with our Advent themes. So the first week was hope, the second week was faith, and the third week is peace. And so for this week of peace, what we're going to look at is we are going to look at what does it mean to learn to rule without being king? What does it mean to learn to rule without being king? Right, last week we said you've got to follow God in a time with no king, but we also are asked to restore some kind of rulership. We have rule to do. And I thought about this. When somebody faces their death, they are often asked, are your affairs in order? This is, this is a thing we ask people when they're facing death. Are your affairs in order? But in, in order for who? In order to what? I'm, I'm leaving this world. My affairs in order for why? Why does that matter? Why, why is that something that we're trying to look for that order and that peace in the time of death? Or somebody will be about to go and they will look in the eyes of their loved one and they'll say, I am at peace. I am at peace. I'm ready to go. But ready to go to what? Re- ready to go to whom? Where? What does this mean? In my case, I looked at one of my elderly neighbors in the eyes, unbeknownst to me, a day or two before he had died. 
And he kept saying to me over and over again, I'm really actually okay now. I'm really actually okay now. I'm feeling much better now. But why? What is it that brought him to feel better? And I think if anyone's being real in this moment, they would have to admit that what all humans are asked to do at the end of their lives is to relinquish control, to let go. We have to realize we can't do it all. I was playing a board game with some of the guys in this community. Riley was there. We were playing this game. This, this is like almost masochistic. We were playing a game called Pandemic in a global pandemic, right? And we were, we, we were, the whole point of this game, it's cooperative and you're trying to stop a virus from invading the world map on the board. And you have to function as a team. And sometimes you have really high stress scenarios, right? Everything's invading around and you've got your players on different countries. And at one point, I think I said to Riley, I said, I, I, I don't know, man. I, I think it sounds like you just need to do what you can with where you are. And Riley goes, that sounds like sage life advice. <laughs> and I thought, I thought that is what we're faced with, with the limits of our being, right? We have to decide, okay, everything is not in my control, but I have to learn to rule without being king. Every human's job is to learn to rule without being king. Think, think about how we have to do this in our life. From a very young age, we realize our smallness. But the thing is, when you're a kid, you're constantly growing. So while you're in this growing stage, often until kind of your mid-20s, you're thinking, well, I'm just constantly getting better. I can do it. I can seize the world. Nothing can limit me. I'm constantly improving and getting better. And then you hit some point where you start to realize your smallness, and you start to realize, I can't do it all. I can't control my world. Things are spinning out of control. And when you're older, it introduces this sense and you start to feel feelings like this. I'm a failure. I I'm too limited. I don't have enough time. The tallies of mistakes in my life are piling up and it seems like maybe I have more failures than successes. The roads taken and the roads not taken begin to show us that we are profoundly limited beings. But I think the most happy people I know have come to terms with this in some holy way. In some holy way, they have let go and embraced their limits and begin to make peace with doing what they can with where they are. Think about it. Any good manager has experienced this. Any father, any mother, any volunteer or employer has been in a situation where things begin to spin out of control. You can't control what your boss is doing. You can't control the direction the company is going or who they're laying off or who you have to fire. You can't control the fact that other people are taking vacations and you are now asked to work more hours. You can't control these things. We've all been in this position and we are called to continue to rule over what we've been given, whether that's our homes or our clients or an aircraft or a kitchen. We're continuing to rule over it. And if we panic and if we start to spiral, we will lose our ability to rule. 
So we actually need peace. This week we're talking about peace and we know we really need peace. We're constantly searching for it. Peace is what gives us the ability to rule without being king. So today I want to look at Psalm 146 and I want to look at at four things here, which means we'll be moving quickly. The first is the Christian promise of peace. What is the Christian promise of peace? Then we'll look at the challenges of peace, the search for peace, and the person of or the people with peace. The Christian promise of peace. Okay, so when we look at Psalm 146, there's, as I read through, you get to verse five and it says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. That means living in peace is he whose God is the God of Jacob. We see in this Psalm, three things are happening. There is the stark realities of life, okay? There is put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Those are stark realities, they're unavoidable. The Bible is constantly coming up against those realities and addressing what does it mean then when God makes the promises he makes? And that's the second thing we see in this psalm. Whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed. The Lord sets the prisoners. We see all of these wonderful things about the character and behavior of God and his promises. And then we see the behaviors of the peaceful man. And what are those? I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes. This is his behaviors. Now, I I think that often we've heard sermons that say, well, Jesus is the prince of peace. You have a God who desires peace. So just be at peace. What's your problem? Right? Like, why are you so emotional? Why are you panicking? You're at peace. Be at peace. I don't think we can claim that one who lives in peace will always feel the emotions of peace. I think that's, that's a, an assumption a lot of Christians and pastors make too quickly. And then we write off or we patronize or we shame People. And then what happens when we're not feeling peace? We make excuses for ourselves, don't we? We can't assume that this will necessarily mean you have the emotions of peace, but we can trust in the promise that we are in peace when we follow the Lord. That this blessed man is in some form of peace. He can experience peace. It is within his reach. And that's saying a lot in the world we live in. The setting for peace exists in God. And this is in contrast to what? In verse three and four, it says, put not your trust in princes. So this songwriter knows that we have a tendency to depend and follow and trust on princes because why? They promise to take care of us. The princes are the leaders, the politicians, the celebrities, the church leaders, the TV personalities, the friends, the authors of books we read who promise to take care of us. 
right? And then we have the panics and the life ending things that happen to us. And guess what that shows us? Often that shows us where we've put our trust. Have I put my trust in a prince? Well, I don't know. Is the panic of losing my job not just bad, but catastrophic, life ending? I'm gonna scream and completely go out of character. I'm gonna go on tirades. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stress out. I'm gonna become a basket case. Like that is the difference between that thing being an important thing in your life and that thing being the ultimate thing in my life, right? Do I trust in princes or do I trust in the Lord, the God of Jacob? Or the panic of losing a spouse. It's not just terrible, it makes us suicidal, right? Or maybe even the idea of your spouse being angry at you or a friend being angry at you doesn't just make you upset. It doesn't set you off a little bit. You're, you're losing the plot of your entire life because you can't handle it because you've made that person into the ultimate thing. Put not your trust in princes. Or maybe it's the feeling of our children screaming at us and hating at us or us damaging them or something. And it brings us not just to a place of recalibration, but a place of deep self-loathing and self-hatred, a shame that's debilitating. And so the world knows that this piece is crucial. The world knows that we look to it for peace. The world knows that we wanna trust in princes. And so the world promises us peace through all kinds of things. Protection, a large military, government and safety, police, laws and justice, freedom to the basic necessities of life. Sometimes even deeper things, right? Like we watch TV and we watch home improvement shows that promise us peace if our house looks a certain way. Escape in entertainment and new streaming services that promise us a kind of peace other belief systems or philosophies that bring justice and affirmation and peace all over the place. The world is asking us to trust in princes as the ultimate thing. You can't give enough. They will always take more. Are those things bad? Is the protection from the government with the military bad? Absolutely not, right? These are important things for us, but they get to a place where the people giving them want to be the ultimate thing. And then we know we've put our trust in princes. Here's the other way we put trust in princes. And a lot of us say, John, I don't do that. I've learned my lesson. I don't put trust in princes anymore. You know why? The only person I can trust is who? Me. Myself. The only person I've learned in my life as I've gotten older that I can trust is me. I don't do group projects with the other kids at school because nobody does their work. I'm always the one that does it. I only trust in myself. We learn this from a very, very young age. And so we make ourself the prince that we put our trust in. And then we hit the panic of 30 and 40 years old of feeling insignificant. Or when I'm not listened to, followed or obeyed or just plain wrong, I feel, I feel insulted. I feel ashamed. And then I realize I'm an unworthy prince. I'm a sham prince and I can't even rule well. It's the panic we feel of showing up at a friend who is younger and richer with a larger house and a more beautiful wife or whatever. And then you realize, why do I feel so bad? 
It's because I've made myself into my own prince. And then the simplest way that the songwriter knocks the legs out of this argument of saying, here's why you shouldn't put your trust in princes is in the very next verse. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. The simplest way to knock the legs out of this argument is that humans don't last. We just don't last. Everyone is smart not to trust in something that doesn't last. Who wants to trust in something that doesn't last? We don't place our ultimate trust in the food that will rot in our fridge. So we say, oh, I need to place it in somewhere where it will be more useful, where it will last longer. I'm going to place my trust in the farm where the food grows. Then I will have something really reliable. But we can't place the trust in the farm because then what happens? We get years of drought and no food grows. And we, meet, we find we actually need to place our trust in what? What do all farmers hope for and pray for and read, read countlessly about? The weather. I have to place my trust ultimately in the weather. But who controls the rain? Who controls the sun? And this is literally where the songwriter is taking us to. This is like a philosophical argument. And he's taking us on verse 6. He says, Blessed is the man who help, whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. See, it's too easy to say this is a psalm about where we will find peace and where we won't, although it is. But that's too easy. Really what this is saying is there is one place you will find peace and then there is one place where you will look and you will look and you will look. And that's the story of our lives. We can choose one place where we will find peace or we can just keep looking. And so what this psalm is saying in very short and pretty much all of the psalms say this is just Get to the point. Get, get to the thing that you need to trust in right away because otherwise you'll spend your whole life looking. That is the Christian promise of peace that the Lord our God holds and creates and is a place of peace. Now, here's what, what's the challenge of peace. Well, it's very obvious what the challenge of peace is. It's right here in the psalm. If we place our peace in God, this presents a real problem for us, okay? We are not out of the woods yet. Once we say, I believe in God, I trust in Jesus, I, he is my Lord and Savior, I'm saved, all favor is upon me, my life will now go well. Are we out of the woods yet? Is that what happens to every person? No. What do we often say? What's the argument most of the time against faith from anybody who's criticizing it, looking at it critically with their, maybe with their head screwed on straight? Let's be honest. They say, maybe there isn't a God. Otherwise, wouldn't he fix this? So that's the challenge of peace. In Christianese, we could call this promise, God's promise versus his providence. 
What he says is from his character and what he will bring versus what actually is. Okay? So in everyday language, what we're looking at, the tension of peace for all of us, if we drill it down, is what we know God is versus what we know life is. And this is the whole story of Job, right? This is the whole story of human suffering. And for here, I want to look a little bit at when this psalm was compiled to tell us part of the story. We don't know exactly when all the psalms were written, but we do know that they were generally compiled in the exile of Israel or slightly thereafter. Okay, so if you know some of the story of Israel, what happens is that Israel goes into decline. Right. The kings stop following Yahweh. There's intermarriage. There's worshiping. They're setting up idols for all the other gods. The outside empires began to invade and take charge. And then they put the Israelites into captivity. And for 70 years of the exile, there is a dark and lonely and destitute period for Israel. And that is when the Psalm book was made. Megan, every week for music is going through a songbook to pick out songs we're going to sing. The Psalms are the songbook of Israel in a time of exile. This is, this is them looking to hold on to their hope and their faith and find peace in a time when it couldn't be more dark. If Israel were the all-star of the NBA in the reign of David, now they feel like a washed up has-been. Nobody's phoning them up for press interviews. Nobody wants them on TV. They're not even invited to talk shows anymore. They are ignored. They are worthless. That time has passed. Yet they still sing this song of hope and faith and praise. And this can only happen within a place of peace. To truly praise God for who he is amidst what is, is to dwell in peace through hope and faith. The order of our Advent calendars actually gives us a narrative for peace. But what are the exilic scribes, what are these people in exile that are codifying all this, what are they putting their hope and faith in? Well, in Israel, what were they putting their hope and faith in? The reign of David, the king. They wanted a king, they got a king, they became a great nation. And now what do they have to put their hope in? They don't have a king. Their king is gone. They're under a foreign king in captivity. And so what do they say? A little course correction here. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. No, they're putting their faith in God. So this psalm is evidence that the followers of Yahweh are finding peace in God's promises despite a mess of a world, despite a mess of a life. We have permission as people who profess faith in Jesus, and we have good reason to continue to believe even though the world is as it is. The psalm proves it. So then we have the challenge of peace. We have some resolution there. Now what? Now what do we do? Now we get to the search for peace. Okay, John, I understand that peace is available. 
I understand that it can make philosophical sense, that I understand that, that there is some historical narrative here that shows me that people had peace in this. I understand I can access it. Now show me how. There are two ways that we can see a search for peace. And the first is finding peace in God's word through his people. And the second is by applying this to our own hearts. There is an argument that there's actually a narrative structure to the compilation of all 150 Psalms, that there's actually a story being told from Psalm 1 to 150. This is not just a random assembly of songs that somebody just said, oh, I'm going to stick this one here. That there is actually a, a narrative, a flow that they're bringing us through, just like a great worship service can have a flow to it. These Psalms are bringing us to some conclusion and one of the evidences of this is Psalm 89, which is a turning point in the narrative arc. There's five books of the Psalms. It's a little Bible nerdy for you guys, so I'll be short. Five books of Psalms. The first three books are mostly lament. They present a sort of descent into the fall of the kingdom of Israel. There's lament. There's why are people chasing me? Or David's crying out, all these things. And then there's these Psalms that indicate that he's kind of in his kingship. And then we get to Psalm 89 at the end of book three, and this lament and this descent, the fall of the kingdom of Israel has hit like a fever pitch. And in Psalm 89, it starts with praise, remembering God's promises. And you think, oh great, this is gonna be a praise Psalm. And then at verse 38, it like hits the skids and you realize why the writer has been singing the praise and remembering God's promises. Listen to this but you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one, which in Hebrew is the word Messiah, by the way. You have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. Anybody identifying here? Indeed, you have turned back the edge of his sword. You have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you have created all humanity. Who can live and not see death? Or who can escape the power of the grave? Lord, where is your former great love? Which is your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked. How I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations. The taunts with which your enemies, Lord, have mocked with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. 
This psalm may have been written in a dark period of David's life. It may have been written after a big battle in one of his court songwriters was writing this. But it's clear that if this song was sung and prayed by Israel in the exile, what are they thinking of when they read, you have broken through all his walls and reduced his stronghold to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. They're thinking of Zion, they're thinking of Jerusalem, they're thinking of their hometown, of their nation, and they are realizing and lamenting the fall. How, God, could you want this? Where are you? How are your promises true in light of what is? And they are searching, they are searching for peace by calling out God and his character at the first part of the Psalm and then lamenting what is. And then what do they do? There's this crazy turn at the end of Psalm 89 to seeking God's favor. This gives us permission when we search for peace to express what we know is true about God from his word and his people and then express our life. Just cuss if you need to. Like say what you need to, to get out the anger, the feelings, all of the rot in your heart, all of the despair, get it all out at him so that you can come at verse 52 and say, praise be the Lord forever, amen and amen. We have a God who can handle that from you. He can handle your anger. He can handle your turmoil. He knows that it won't make sense to you because he's asking you to learn to rule even though you aren't king. He's asking you to rest in him and his care. He's asking for Christians to have tenacious hope that even though when we're emotionally feeling that God's blessing is lost, that we can cry out, be faithful to your promise to David and your forever throne for Israel, that you promise God, be faithful to that. Praise be to God that we have a God who can do what we cannot. As we get older, that becomes more and more important to us. When there are more and more roads not taken, we have a God who can do what we cannot. When we have wayward children or family members or we are the prodigal son, praise be to God. So we zoom out and we see that Psalm 89 is positioned at the end of book three of the Psalms. And then we see book four and five of the Psalms. And I'll show you just a little graph here if you wanna be nerdy with me. Book one, book two, book three. Look at the blue, it's going down, lament. And look at the arc of the praise. These are the amount of praise Psalms versus the amount of lament Psalms. What is the narrative arc of the whole book of Psalms? It's the narrative arc of a lot of the Psalms. Let's lament, let's get it out of us. And then let us praise the Lord, who is a greater king. This is a graphic of the sanctified Christian life. This is a graphic of what it means to journey with God over your life. And this is a a hope that we can have, that as we reach the end of our life, we might be like some of those people we've looked in the eyes on their deathbed and they say, I am at peace. Praise the Lord. 
I understand my limits. I have seen them, and I know I have a God who has none. Praise the Lord. What an incredible way to think about the Christian life. What an incredible hope to have that we know we can be expected to lament. That God is not surprised by that. That that is us working out our salvation and coming to terms with who we are by first finding peace in God's word and through his people and then applying this to our own hearts. So for this, I want to use an illustration. Most of us, probably everyone in this room is familiar with The Grinch. We watched The Grinch last night as a family, the, the new like animated one. And the Grinch, of course, I know, I know, Wendy. And he tells the story in this new one, right? This is more than just the Dr. Seuss rhyme. And so they tell a little backstory and they tell a story of the Grinch's childhood when he lived in an orphanage alone and unwanted and didn't get any gifts when all the Who's in Whoville got all their gifts. And as a result, the Grinch hates Christmas, just hates it. The promises of Christmas don't line up with the reality of Christmas for the Grinch. And so he tells his dog, Max, he says, I'll become Santa Claus, except instead of filling all with joy and happiness, I'll take it all away. He's saying, if I can't get my way, I'll see that either I get what I deserve, or if I can't have it, then no one else will. I will reconcile my life with the promises my own way. I will do what I can in my control. When Christmas doesn't work out for him, when the promise doesn't seem to come true, what happens? Does it help the Grinch? No, we all know the rhyme, the Dr. Seuss rhyme. His heart grows two sizes too small. This is what happens to our heart when we try to reconcile the promise with our promise by taking control in our own hands and saying, I will make my own life then out of this. I hate you, God. I hate Christmas. I hate all the good things from other people. I will make a life for myself and it will be a good life. And what happens is our heart shrinks and shrinks, just like the Grinch's. Because we say the promise of Christmas must not be for me. Therefore, I abandon God and his ways. I abandon Christ and his Christmas. And so the Grinch thinks that he can steal the kids' toys, and he thinks he'll be stealing Christmas because Christmas to him, the Christmas he never had, was those toys, was those two things lining up. And what he finds out is that there's a girl who doesn't want presents. She just wants help for her mom. And even once all of their stuff was stolen, she sees all the who's in Whoville, the Grinch sees all of them gather down and they hear, of course, we know this part, Wendy, it's in the original. They hear the song of all the who's singing for Christmas, even though the Grinch has separated the promise from the reality. Even though he's come in and he's ripped it apart and broken that world, the faithful who's of Whoville Sing the Christmas song and have the joy and Christmas cheer 
because they have hope and faith and believed in Christmas. That part's not as obvious in the story, but that's where we get the holiday. The Whovilles are expressing the gospel. The Who's in Whoville are gospel people in that story. We have a game we play in this church, which is looking for the gospel in every story that we can. That's where it is. That's where it is in the Grinch. And in the end, it says, the narrator says, he tried to forget it, but the words filled his heart and he found himself thinking about what the young girl had said. It was hard to imagine. Could it really be true? But if they could all be happy, maybe he could be too. So how to find peace, God's word and his people. And it should be enough just to say God has peace and we need to believe in God. But we've all heard that and that's not very helpful. I can look you in the eye and I don't know your life and I don't know your story. And I can say, well, you know, God has peace. So you just need to believe in God. And you're going to say that guy was not a very helpful pastor. He doesn't get me. He doesn't know what I'm going through. We need to know how to change. If peace exists and the promise of peace is true and we can search for it and there is a way to find it, challenging as though it may be, we need to know how to change. We need to know how to apply the peace of God's word found through his people to our own hearts. And for that, we come back to Psalm 146 to look at the behaviors of the blessed man. What does he do? He is a man who finds, first of all, that he needs help. That is part of letting go. He sees he cannot do it all, that he cannot live forever. He sees that princes will not deliver. He sees that he will not deliver, that he will reach an end to himself. But there's another part of this that will slip if you don't read it closely. It slipped for me the first time I read it. Verse one and two, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Who is he speaking to there? Is he speaking to God or is he speaking to himself? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Isn't that wild? That in order to change, he has to tell his soul, soul, praise the Lord. Soul, I know you're not feeling peace. I know you have every reason to believe there isn't any peace in this world. But God has promised it for you and his people have abided in it and worked it out and done crazy things because of it. So soul, praise the Lord. Preaching to self was highly recommended by the 20th century British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? I can vouch for that. Most of the unhappiness in your life is because you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Israel could come and praise Lord in the darkest days of their lives as a nation, as a people, as a community. There was no light at the end of that tunnel. And yet they could praise God because they would say with the psalm, praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. 
because God is trustworthy to his promises. So the result of peace is not, and this is another thing Christians and pastors do a lot, the result of peace is not telling you to be okay with hurt, with loss, with the lack in your life because God cares for you. No, it's knowing that God is the only way out of those things that come from our rebellion and its effect on this earth and that we are at his mercy. We can't explain it all and we're not made to. That's how we learn to rule under the king. Eugene Peterson calls this, this way of living your life in peace, dwelling in peace and preaching to your heart, the long obedience in the same direction. And this is what we call the Christian life of sanctification. And what it does is it actually makes us into wise people, which makes sense because we have a God of wisdom. That's why I read Proverbs 1 at the start of this service was to give us a vision for what wisdom looks like. Wisdom is anchored to hope and faith and peace. Because in verses five through 10, what do we see about God? We see he is a wise God. He's an order maker. He made heaven and earth and the sea that's all and all that's in them. He keeps his faith forever. He's reliable. Wise people in your life are trustworthy. They do what they say and say what they'll do. He executes justice for the oppressed. It takes a very wise person to be truly just. The search for peace shows us that we will grow into more wise people, but we will never have all the answers. We will never be our own princes. And that brings us to the final point here, which is that there is a person of peace and out of him, there is a people of peace. There is one prince we can trust who is chosen by God. And that's why we, of course, observe Advent is to await his coming. Well, the story of the Messiah is actually not totally simple. In the Bible, there's points at which the Bible looks forward to some silhouette that will become Jesus. That's faint and foggy and not well made out. In Genesis 3.15, we talked about how he will be the one who bruises the head of the serpent. Well, that's just really vague, right? There will be one human sometime who lives up to the things none of us can, is what that says. And then God takes his people through leaders that in some way represent Messiah, whether it's Moses or Abraham, or whether it's the prophets Elijah. Remember, they come to Jesus and they say, are you Elijah? whether it's priests or warriors in the judges, and then eventually Israel asks for a king. And Samuel warns them he doesn't want to train them to just be fed. He wants them to trust in the weather, right? And he says, it won't be good for you, but God will give you what you want. Now, why does God appoint? Why does he anoint Saul? Saul is the first anointed one. He's the first Messiah. That's what that word actually means. Why on earth would God give us a king who is not the king? Sometimes God gives us what we ask for just to show us we need him. This is just a truth with living. Sometimes he gives us exactly what we ask for just to show us we need him. 
Because once we've gotten what we asked for, are we content? Are we at peace? Are we happy? Are we the king of everything? We will come to the end of ourselves. And we see this growing sense in David as he's awaiting some kind of, as as David, who is the Messiah, the anointed one of that time, the reigning king of Israel, reaches the end of his life. He's looking forward and he's saying, well, thank God that you've blessed the line. You blessed my son Solomon. And so it's going to come to Solomon. So he has faith that the Messiah will come eventually out of his line. Maybe Solomon will be the one. Solomon gets to build the temple and Zion will be a place that reigns forever in the line of David and Solomon. It will continue like that. But imagine how Israel felt when Solomon marries hundreds of wives and brings Israel into a tailspin and then king after king after king. And they go, what is who anointed who Messiah? What? What king? I don't see how the Messiah is going to actually reign forever and restore Israel. And so in this time of exile, around this time that these Psalms are codified, they're actually created because Israel is going, the Messiah must be something else. It must be further out. It must be like an end times thing. In Daniel, we went in week one, we talked about how Daniel observes the son of man coming up to the throne by the ancient of days. Daniel's saying, there will be one, I don't know when, maybe at the very end. And what Israel is doing, and this is the last kind of thing I'm going to talk about, what Israel is doing is that they are practicing building a greater and greater imagination for the Messiah. Something that we all need to do, even as Christians who've read and studied Jesus and say, a lot of times, here's what we do. We study, we study, we study, and we put him in more and more and more of a box. Oh, Jesus wouldn't do that. Oh, you know, Jesus did this. Oh, he, he thinks this. I know what Jesus thinks. But what we see in Israel is in light of their circumstances and who God is, they build a greater imagination for the Messiah and the great peace that he will bring. Who did people think the Messiah was at the time of Christ? He was going to be a king. He was going to be probably a warrior who came and was a revolutionary, right? Who could give the law and restore Israel as a great nation, who could become like David. They had no idea he was going to be so much greater than David that he would actually be God in the flesh who could atone for their sins, The disciples, after Jesus' death and resurrection, might have just had their minds completely blown for their imagination of what the Messiah could be. So this psalm here is a psalm of imagination. Our faith is not supposed to lull us into complacency or push us down, put us underneath the boot of the religious or of the religious institutions. That is not what religion is for. Religion has been cast as a people control institution, right? As a tool for the poor to just, you know, that religion's for stupid people. We've heard this before. But if you're smart, you'll realize it's not true and it can't control you anymore. I see a people here who are under the boot of Babylon who say my religion is the most freeing, imaginative, 
hopeful thing I could possibly hope on. The black communities and the black churches have long proclaimed that the prophetic imagination is the hope for their life, the hope in God. If we practice in this season imagining peace so that we can participate in peace as people of peace in a world at war, imagine the witness that we can be. If we don't succumb to the ways of the world, but we actually are people who practice peace even though we don't possess it in and of ourselves and nothing in our life represents any reason that we ought to have it other than the word of God. This is what Jesus practiced. And this is why Jesus could become a most unusual Messiah. He would become a suffering king who would take the crown of sanctification. He would journey through the Psalms with us in the lament to rock bottom, following God in tenacious hope until his death on the cross, until he's murdered. And then all praise would burst forth, all praise from his people. And he would say something like he says, this is his prophetic imagination. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives you, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus says, not as the world gives, do I give you. He's going to defy the expectations of how and when we could have peace. He's going to give us peace at the most miraculous times. He can bring incredible mercy and peace in suffering. I was thinking about, you know, the holidays can bring a lot of different things for a lot of people. If you do have an experience this holiday where you just feel an incredible peace, we had family in town, so we just had... I had a moment where I just felt such peace. I just felt this is right, this is great. And I imagined what greater peace God could bring than that. That's an amazing thing. So we learn what the Grinch learns as people who follow God, that learning to rule without being king is first and foremost a problem of the heart. This is a problem of our hearts. And we need to teach our heart and preach to our heart that peace is not found in giving enough, nor in justifying one's past, nor in righting wrongs, but in letting go of everything you thought you needed and accepting the love of the creator for you. This is where peace is found. God is not angry with you. He has a love so deep that when you wrong him, he just wants the real you back. And he will never give up. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I'm just going to read you a couple lyrics from a song that we listened to this week that I love called Rest by the Grey Havens. And there's this part where he says, singing, Father, bless your name. Let your kingdom come. Give my eyes, help me see and believe your son. Give me faith. Help me rest in the work he's done because the work is done. Let's pray. God, uh, as I look out in this room, we are a people who desperately need you. 
We are a people who are looking all over for ways that we cannot. We think it would be easier if we could find other ways, but we come to the end of those ways and we realize we need you, God. Love us. We know you will. Show us your love through your people, through your community. Show us your love by turning our hearts, by helping us let go, by giving us a new life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.